0: here with Father Jim O'Donnell, and I'm very excited to spend some time with him and to hear about his life of prayer, how he has been formed through the Holy Spirit and has come to know um, God in his own life. So, Father Jim, thank you for doing this interview.
1: And thank you, Michael, for even asking me to do so. I'm honored. Thank you.
0: Well, what I'd like to start off with, first of all, is tell me a little bit about uh, your childhood. What were your first memories of prayer?
1: Uh, My mother, um, my mother and father both came from Ireland. But my mother had a a real deep sense of faith and love of God. And um, she would, um, from our earliest years, uh, taught us all the prayers. And above all, um, we prayed the rosary every day together. And I always remember in the midst of storms, she'd come through the house with a bottle of holy water, sprinkled it on us that God might preserve us from all evil and all harm. And um, so I think, without thinking about it, as a young child, I grew up that way with, uh, with my mother and uh, my siblings. I, have, I was the oldest of three at that time. Later on, a, another brother was born uh, 15 years after me. So, uh, but we were four children. And um, as I say, my mother had a, a great love for God, just a, a great faith um, um, and a belief. She came here poorly, uh, left home um, at, uh, at at a young age of 18, and um, came to a country she never knew. And uh, but all of this was because of her faith life. Uh, they gave her the courage to take those steps to keep on going, even though it was difficult. You know. And my father as well. I mean, he was a big, strong man, and um, um, he truly was a pilgrim. I mean, he came a without any papers, uh, he literally was came over on a boat shoving coal on a, a big steamer. And um, But he was a person that always was able to navigate through a lot of difficult things in life. But one day in high school, I think I was um, probably 16 or 17 years old, I was working on, on the construction. So my father did, he, he was a laborer. And one day he said to me, um, I guess it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We quit about 4.30. He says, I want to teach you something today. And I thought, wow, okay. He said, you may not you know, see me always on my knees in prayer at home, but I want you to know that I work hard, but I don't do it to please some foreman or superintendent of a job. This is my prayer. And so we to go, I want to go back over with you and look at every ditch we were in today and realize that this was all done out of my love for God. Wow. And I always remember what a powerful influence that was for me to realize that this man who, uh, you know, I would never think that, <clears throat> that he was that conscious of God's presence, but he said, I work hard, but I do it because I love God. And this is my thanks to God. But as a young person, again, it was a, a powerful example of, of my father um, teaching me his way of prayer as well.
0: Almost like a St. Joseph in the background. Yeah, yeah. When you prayed the rosary with your family, was it with your family? or just Yes, yeah. My brother, did, well, all of us what together. What was that like for you as a kid? Were you bored? Did you like? No, it
1: No, I liked it, yeah. We all knelt down in the living room. <laughs> um, and... Um, I know for my sister, whom I see every Saturday, um, we we grew up loving that. You know, I think I, without question, we grew up with a great love for our blessed mother.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, um, but it was just a way of life. I mean, and it, not only in our family, but all the Irish families that we were part of that lived in the same community area of East Cleveland, um, they all did the same thing. Every night after supper, it was the rosary, before you went out the door. If you had a date or wherever you're going, you prayed the rosary first before you went out the door. Hmm. So by seven o'clock, it was all finished. So whatever activity you had to go to, you could go, but not before you prayed the rosary. So, But it was not like, like uh, oh, why do we have to do this? Uh, especially in teenagers. Uh, uh, surely the other kids don't do this. I never found ourselves saying that, you know, saying, well, why, why do we have to do this? or Uh, How come um, uh, other kids that are Irish and Catholic, they aren't doing this? Well, they were doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow. um, So those are early beginnings, certainly. And uh, a great love for the Eucharist, you know, uh, going to Mass, uh, oftentimes daily, uh, at St. Philomena's in East Cleveland. um, And um, so nourished in the Eucharist, as well as nourished in daily prayers, um, you know, you became a, a server in grade school and it was something you looked forward to, to do. And um, So all those were formative um, experiences, to say the least, you know.
0: How about your own private prayer? Did you pray alone at all as a child?
1: I don't remember doing so. I suppose I did. Um, but I don't remember as, um, as such, you know. Mm-hmm. I think I probably did. When I, I know when I went to church, uh, i enjoy i just enjoyed being in church um and uh being quiet um, without you know uh, things that maybe were bothering me at the time or worry about taking an exam or something um, I would certainly be present uh in church for those moments but um yeah i and I enjoyed being a server so i mean there was a prayerfulness in that too i i know i um something that I, you know, I enjoyed doing. It wasn't like, oh, we have to get up and be there for six o'clock mass. I, I love to get up early and I love to get there. So it wasn't like a terrible chore. (laughs) I I know for some people, maybe it is, but it was never, I wanted to be there on time and I was always an early riser and I was always there on time. And, and, uh, um,
0: what do you think it was? You know, a lot of kids today think it is a, a chore to go to mass. They don't, necessarily want to go. Why did? Why do you think you enjoyed it?
1: Because I felt close to God. I felt close to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that feeling and that experience. Probably more than just the feeding. I just, something I, in. I literally enjoyed doing. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about being a priest from the time I made my first communion. Uh-huh. And I felt called at that time. Um, so, I was very imbued early on with this love for Christ and love for the priesthood um, and that it never left me. You know, yeah. you know. sometimes you could, some people go through that, but by the time they get through with high school, that's not a, it's something they want to do anymore. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that seed was planted um, on um, May the 8th of 1937 and it never left me. Do you remember that day? I do.
0: What do you remember about it?
1: I remember not only the joy of making my first communion, but the, the joy of going back in the afternoon at three o'clock to be enrolled in the scapular. That is a, a thing that sticks out in my mind as well. It was just a very joyful, peaceful day. Yeah. And um, it was exciting. And I say, even the I, I look forward to going back in the afternoon, and uh, that what was
0: that, for people that don't know what that is. What does it mean to be enrolled in the scapular?
1: It's a like a. It's not like a medal that you put around your neck, but it comes from the Latin word a scapula, which is your shoulder, and so it's a. It's a, a like. It's not a medal, but it's a memory of. Um, no, Our Blessed Mother, and I'm trying to think of the other saints. Simon, I think it was, and Jude, but anyhow you put that over your shoulder and it went on your back and then on, the, on your chest. And and it was just a special, again, of literally of consecrating you to God. So it was something that was done in those days. And, uh, um, you know, again, the spirituality that I experienced then, um, uh, again, it's a different time today. Even the formation I had in the seminary, um, it was good for the time, but it certainly wouldn't... <laughs> I would not in any way want someone to have to go through that today. It wouldn't make any sense. It would, it would just... And I think today our spiritual life with young people, I mean, I, I say it with my two children here, I mean, it's just, it's a different time. Mm-hmm. And I can't quite form them in the same way, perhaps, that, that I was formed, nor maybe, nor it doesn't mean that I should either, you know. So, But however, um, the important thing is formation is necessary.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, And sometimes here... Children see it more than something you talk to them about. I think we, that's why today, I mean, I was influenced by my parents. I saw something. I saw the love. I saw the faith. I saw through hard times, because in the 30s was difficult times for work and sustenance of life. But I saw, I saw the faith life. And that influenced me deep.
0: So for people that, that don't know you, uh, they might be a little surprised when you refer to your children. Could you tell us a little bit about
1: that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Never thought about that. Um, well, I've been in this neighborhood now for going on 39 years. And over these years, uh, a lot of our children in this neighborhood have been abused and hurt. And, and so Sister Maggie, who is a consecrated virgin, said to me one day, Would you be open to the fact if we t- take in some foster children? because there's too many of these kids being hurt and, and perhaps we can help them in some way, especially get them when they're infants. I said, fine, that's okay with me, you know. I, but in my situation as a priest in the diocese, I couldn't be the adoptive or foster parent. But if you're open to it, I'm, I'm here to support you in it. So that's how it began and we had 14 foster children and, and then they were going back into very bad situations and so we thought, this is not good. And then Maggie said, do you mind if we adopt and get them as infants? And hopefully they won't be as hurt. But even as infants, they were wounded in the womb through alcohol, through drugs. through. Uh, so that's how we came to adopt Martin, who is now 12 and got him when he was two days old. Uh, and Caroline came to us when she was nine months and now she's 10. Um, and so it's been a joy in my life as a priest. I never thought I'd be doing this. <laughs> and um, so that's how that has happened, you know.
0: So I want to go back to your, you obviously had, maybe not unique then, but I think unique now, that experience of family truly being, you know, the the, the, the primary church. You know, it was, mm-hmm. your, it was your parents that really modeled for you this mm-hmm. this life of prayer, uh, not only in in that prayer life but also your, your father as he worked. Yeah. You know, so as you continue to transition on, when did you, when did you go into the seminary?
1: Um, in May of nineteen forty eight. Well I went actually in, in September of forty
0: eight. And you were was that high school or college? I just finished high school. You just finished high school I was just eighteen. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your transition from that prayer life in in your home to, to where it really became a prayer life that you incorporated into way into you.
1: Well, I think um, you know. at 18, I left home mm-hmm. for the first time, and in fact, once you go to the seminary in those days, um, you never really went back home again. I mean, in terms, of your summertime you were at home, but for the rest of the year, you're. In those days, we were more confined even then. You know, um, so um, I think. That sustained me um, and helped me because sometimes the prayer life in the seminary was a a great deal around um, the office, divine prayer, um, but it wasn't really steeped in private or uh, quiet moments of prayer. And I think that what I received at home uh, helped me to find my own way, in a sense. So I would go to the chapel at St. At Mary's, or I was in college in Canada. Uh, I would find a, a place to go and, and be silent and quiet. Uh, and I, at that time, of course, uh, I wasn't receiving spiritual direction, it just, uh, later on it came, but I didn't have it then, you know, in the seminary, I didn't. Uh, unlike today, which I think is good, students have spiritual directors, they're encouraged to do so. But in, at that time in our life, um, I don't know uh, other priests or seminarians at that time, whether they had spiritual directors, but I didn't have one then in the seminary. But I reached inside, I think, inside of me. And uh, I knew that, I, I again, I longed for a moment just to be quiet, go down to the chapel and sit there and be uh, by myself. And uh, I, I think that helped me a lot. I, I don't think I would have... Um, Got along too well if it was just depending upon the uh, the community prayer. The, uh, that wouldn't have been enough for me. Um, so God, through his own wisdom and spirit, guided me, really, um, and, and helped me to long for that place. And I, I love to go to the chapel and be there on my own.
0: Can you paint a picture for us of what that looked like, what that experience was like for you to go to the chapel?
1: Well... It was just the silence that enveloped me. I felt, in a way I guess it, it must be like what you felt when you were in the womb of your mother. There was a certain comfort that, uh, uh, that infant has in the womb of the mother. Uh, there's a, a joy, there's a comfort. I believe that it was something of that nature. I felt always some joy, I felt some peace. Um, because for me, uh, um, education wife in the summary was very difficult. I never found studies easy. I always had to work hard and and sometimes I was just getting by. And uh, there were times when I wondered would they ever even ordain me, you know. I just, I don't know. Um, so, but that, but that was good because it, it really... Deep within me, where am I going to find some peace in all of this? And it was in the quiet, in the chapel, in the presence of the Eucharist. I think that was the key. The chapel wasn't just the chapel, mm-hmm. it was the fact that the presence of God is there in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And um, even the holy orders and some were all filled with prayers. It's like they couldn't have an hour without it filled with all kinds of prayers you had to say. And it, it maybe it left you for maybe 10 minutes, you might have had in complete silence. But for the most part, it was always filling things up. Even then, it did like, um, <laughs> it's almost like, why, why wouldn't you just leave them there for a half hour or an hour, you know? Because we, we would have times when you'd have Eucharistic devotions in the seminary, whatever, and, you, and you'd go and you'd kneel up before the Blessed Sacrament for an hour. And that was always a joy to do, and I, I loved that, you know, so it's, um, well, I don't know, those are some of my feelings of, uh, it was a joy, it was a love, a comfort actually, a comfort. And I, I got not much solace out of that, you know.
0: Well, I think that's a real gift because a lot of people long for that, um, and I think as a priest, when, when people want to learn how to pray, they think of saying prayers, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's almost yeah. like you said that they, they, filled, they filled that holy hour with prayers, but you had that, that almost innate ability to be in silence and to enjoy silence and not to be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. I know that certainly is still a part of your, your prayer life now. So as you looked you know, at your time in the seminary, were, were there any times where you, you grew in prayer? Um, any significant moments of prayer?
1: Um, right now, I, I don't recall any significant moments. Um,
0: what was it like then to transition from seminary to priesthood?
1: Well, I was deeply concerned about that. And um, and that's when I knew I'll never make it without a spiritual director. Uh-huh. I need someone to guide me. Because now, once you leave the seminary, there was a structure there you know, you got up every morning at a certain time, you went to the chapel at a certain time, you had your, you know, everything was set laid out for you. Uh, but once you leave that structure, and unlike now, when, you, and I think it's a good thing now, students go out for a year of, uh, to be in a parish for a year and get a sense of how all that spiritual life I've received in the seminary, how does that work out now? Because yeah. it's so easy to get busy <laughs> and be immersed in that. So, That's what it did for me. So, uh, before actually almost my last year, um, I came across a wonderful person in my life who was Father Louis Triveson, and he became my spiritual director for the next, well, almost 50 some years. And and Father Urban Gerhardt, who was a great priest as well. So, I had those two priests that guided me. And we would meet faithfully every month, you know. It was rare we missed a month, you know. And um, and I don't know, you know, how I would have made it without that. Um, I can remember Father Gerhardt uh, giving me a, a pad. Huh. And it said, you know, when you what time you get up, when's your holy hour, when's your office, and you had to fill this thing out. And then give it to him every month. And I thought, you know, some but it was the whole idea was you do it enough, it'll be a part of you. You won't have to have another sheet or you you won't do that again. You yeah. won't have to do it because it's in you. Right. But it was his way of helping me for me was to give me that pad. And I had to bring that every month to him and say <laughs> this is what I've done or haven't done, or where I got too busy and maybe didn't pray the office or something, but um so um those are, those are very, absolutely incredible helps. I mean, I don't... I, that would be my concern today. Um, for even for our, our seminarians today, they're going into a different priesthood at a different time, and more than ever, will need that kind of help and direction. Uh-huh,
0: yeah, yeah. So when, when you became a priest, you know, having had that direction, what were... How, how were you how, did you... how did that your prayer life change and transform?
1: Well, I, I just knew one thing, and I still do it today, it was I had to make sure that I have a, a holy hour every day. Mm. Make sure. And so for me it was always first thing in the morning. Usually Mass would be me six o'clock, maybe even five o'clock, but whatever. Um, and I had priests that I was living with at the time were good men, good holy men. And the one priest told me, he says, every morning, even after you have celebrate your mass, make sure you go out and kneel in front of your confessional and be there in quiet because someone's going to want to receive that sacrament. Mm. So every morning, make your holy hour in front of your confessional. Oh. So I would do that yeah. every morning. Don't go, Don't stay back here in the sacristy. Go out in front of your confession. On and those in and St. Coleman's, we had a portable confession. We didn't have permanent confession like you have today. So, but he said, kneel, and he'd be on one side and I'd be on the other side every morning, kneeling before our, our confessionals. And um, so not only was it a Holy Hour, but you were also hearing confessions every day. Somebody would come, so. Um, but that was just, you know, an automatic in a sense. It was, You're not gonna survive very long if you don't do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, <clears throat> but that was hard because as the days got longer, you were filled with all kinds of, as we are today, with your parish meetings and all kinds of things going on until almost 10 o'clock at night, sometimes 11 o'clock at night. So if you didn't get that holy hour first thing in the morning and get started apart from your office, not so that was just something that was strictly a, a time of quiet to be there before the Eucharist.
0: Yeah, so talk a little bit about that because um, I know some people, when you say holy hour, they think that that's a, an hour. You know, that that would cause them panic. What do you do for an hour? Yeah. What's that like to spend a holy hour?
1: Well, I think the big thing is you don't make a big thing of the 16 minutes. (laughs) That's the hour. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sometimes uh, you might be restless enough and uh, bothered about something enough that it's only going to interfere. So get up. Don't don't stay there when you're feeling that way because uh, you're forcing yourself to do something that's, in the long run will make you more anxious. So you don't do that. So there would come those days when I'd be very worried about something and and that would be so preoccupying my mind that I, I wouldn't be really focused on uh, my the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The holy hour uh, was the whole idea that, yeah, 60 minutes, but not not overly um, conscious of looking at my watch and say, oh my, was it Twenty minutes gone by. <laughs> no, I, I, I try not to do that. Mm-hmm. So some days it might not have—I don't know—it might not have been a full sixty minutes, but it was forty-five minutes. But it was the whole idea to be present, so totally present to Christ in the Eucharist, because He's totally present to me. I mean, it's like—it's that whole idea today. I think we need—if uh, if there's any time today that we need a, a ministry of presence. Is today. And it was the whole idea, how are we going to be present to somebody else today if I'm not present to Christ? I mean, Jesus Christ is waiting for us every day to come. He has something He wants to tell us. So it's not always about what I'm thinking about or what I have to get help with or something I'm troubled about. It's more often, too, just sitting there and realizing that Christ has something to tell you as much as he wants to pull you away from all the distractions and busyness and say, okay. <laughs> um, Does he speak to you? I, I think so. I mean, I don't, you know, in certain ways. Um, more often than not, I I feel that through encounters I have through the day or something that someone is bringing to me or like the other day someone called up and they said, we don't, the priest of our parish is on vacation and, my son just overdosed and uh, we don't have anybody for the funeral. I mean, that was a clear thing for me to the Lord say, look, at, I want you to bring them their comfort, you know? They're hurting. <laughs> 23-year-old son and brother, so. So in that sense, yes. You know, I, I, I really believe that today more than ever, um, probably wasn't as conscious of it early on in my life, but, um, but we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And when we see the Eucharist, we celebrate the Mass, you know. Uh, it's a very, very sacred, special time. I always feel that when I'm celebrating Mass. It's just, I want to try to be devoid of all distraction, just, especially at the consecration. You know, what, what are we really saying here, you know? Um, so, um, that's what I feel, you know. And uh, I, I think that, and as priests, you know, we, God, it's, an incredible life, <laughs> but you know we are called to be present in so many ways to so many people that otherwise, if we don't do it, they're not going to be touched by that. They're not going to find the comfort, the strength, the help they need to, to go on in life. You know, and if I don't find time to, to be before Christ myself, I, then I'm not going to be able to bring to others what what the Lord wants me to bring to them. So, it, it's it's not possible today for a priest to. To be so Im- immersed and so occupied that that he can't find any time to pray. Now, some days, yes, I'm going to be inundated and have been and will be that uh, I'm not getting the time in that I would like. But I'm at peace with that because tomorrow I'll do it.
0: What have been? Um, I know that you're you're big on only not only your holy hour, but that that sense of postinia, that sense of retreat. What have been some significant retreats or prayer times in your life?
1: Well, I guess I would say that I'm here today because of a retreat. Uh, when I say I'm here today, I'm in this neighborhood for 39 years because of a retreat I made.
0: Well, tell us first about the neighborhood. Or yeah, tell us about that experience. Why are you here because of
1: that retreat? Well, that was in, in uh, on the Feast of John Marie Vianney August the 4th of 1969 I began a retreat with John Vanier uh, up in Toronto in a place called um, uh, it's, uh, Augustinian uh, um, Mother House and that retreat was a retreat with people with disabilities it was in fact there was a whole group of young people that came They were hippies in those days 100 people and we formed little small prayer groups and we prayed together and shared together. And I was just overwhelmed by what I was experiencing in that retreat and I I was just grateful to God to be there. And then one day, um, John Vanier sent for me. He wanted to meet with me and I I thought, okay. I I didn't intend to do that, I just went. And uh, and, anyhow, in our little time together, he said to me one thing, he asked me the first question was, uh, have you ever read The Life of Charles de Foucault? <clears throat> and I said, once in the seminary, but I didn't give it too much attention. Well, he said, I want you to go back and read it again <laughs> with more intention because God has called you to, to live your life with poor people. And that was so clear. And it's never left me. And uh, I, that whole rest of the retreat, I was almost like numb. I wasn't quite sure how will this happen, where will it happen, but It happened. And he's still in my life. And we just got a letter from him the other day. In fact, it, he just sent this to me. So I, I, I treasure that friendship with him. Beloved peace of Jesus. I sent him all the the talks that our Holy Father gave while he was here in the United States. And thank you for all the wonderful uh, notes and speech of Francis. Um, Anyhow, and he's, um, I feel deeply in union with you in the heart of Jesus. Keep me in your prayers, especially before the Eucharist. Um, And uh, also what a gift uh, my priesthood is to other people, to the church, and to God's people. So, I mean, uh, this relationship continues even now. That's uh, two weeks ago. Mm. <laughs> um,
0: Who is John Vanier for people that don't know?
1: Well, John Vanier is, uh, came from a very renowned family in, in Canada, in Montreal. His father was the governor general. Uh, uh, his mother, um, they were um, very committed uh, during the French War, and they were involved in the World War Two. Um a great, a prestigious family, uh, but a very humble family and um, a family very influenced by the life of Brother Charles uh, to live a life of presence. Uh, his father, for example, was uh, the equivalent of a judge here and he would never go into his courtroom without spending an hour before the Eucharist. So, uh, And John himself was a philosopher, a teacher. Uh, he wanted so much to be a, a priest at one point in his life, and for for whatever reasons they didn't feel he would, would be an adequate candidate for the priesthood. It's kind of strange, but I, in any event, uh, that led him to go to France, and and he was, this priest asked him if he would help go into this mental institution and kind of come become the director of it. And he said, "I was scared to death. I, you know, I've been a teacher, a philosophy teacher, at Saint." Michael's in Toronto, he says, the last I thought about is living with people that are severely mentally impaired. But that's how it began in 1964. He took in two people and now today, 50 years later, there are 140 communities throughout the world living in community with people of disabilities. And that's what he's primarily known for now and he just received the Templeton Award in London for his work with people with disabilities and um, and has spent much time in, w- working with people in prison and so forth. So uh, that's who John Vanier is. Um, if you noticed, his name is J-E-A-N. They think it's Jean, but the French word for John is J-E-A-N. So he's a male. He's not a female. Uh-huh, he's yeah. John Vanier, and known today because of his great love for what we call L'Arche. L'Arche is the first home where he took in two people, Raphael and Philippe. L'Arche is the French word for the Ark. The whole idea of the Ark of the Covenant. Noah and the Ark. Taking all those people in to the Ark and creating salvation. So that's why it's called L'Arche. So now you have L'Arche Cleveland, L'Arche Erie, L'Arche Buffalo, L'Arche all over. But it's, it, that's what it means. It's, it's the French word for the Ark.
0: Now, when he said that to you on retreat, obviously you know God used him as an instrument and spoke to you what
1: what happened in that in that moment or that I was numb <laughs> <laughs> i I had a tremendous joy inside of me. I truly felt this was a call within a call. Mm. Something was happening inside of me that uh, to this day, I, I feel it. I mean, I know it. So it was something very, very special. It was a special grace of God. It was truly the gift of the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, and that, that, as you said, is what brought you here. Mm-hmm. How did how did that transition? How did you discern that?
1: Well. Um, uh, I guess what, I'm trying to think, um, shortly after that retreat, I I was then director of CYO, had been since 68 um, until 75. Uh, uh, Everything I did after that, uh, as a youth director, I found myself uh, being convinced that a a Dawson youth director doesn't have to be running CYO programs and high clubs and uh, so I had another good friend of mine who actually introduced me to John Vanya and that was Tom McKillop, a priest in Toronto who was, had been director of CYO in Toronto, but got fired because he began to introduce young people to the social gospels. Mm-hmm. And literally um, was asked to leave as youth Dawson Youth Director. So that appealed to me. that, And he started to um, bring before young people People like John Vanier, Mother Teresa, um, uh, the junkie priest uh, from New York, um, John Howard Griffin, uh, Dorothy Day, uh, Chief George. Every year he created an experience where he brought people like this that were living the gospel message. And he would get 3,000 people to come to this event. And I started going to those events and then brought them back here to Cleveland and put on a few at the music hall. but um, So my staff and a lot of people were not uh, particularly excited because they were fearful of what I was doing. We started walks for hunger because I picked it up from what they were doing in Toronto. and So it, it started taking another whole direction for me and, and, the, and CYO as well. I figured there's a lot of very capable people that can run all the CYO programs, the football programs, basketball, all of that. I would go to those things and certainly support them but um, I knew that my efforts and energy should not be totally into those things. So that was the first impact that it had on me from going to that retreat during those days. And uh, then it continued on in different ways uh, after that. Uh, Then in 75, I went to Bishop Pickey and said, I really feel called to spend a whole year with four other people that I've met through youth work and we're going to go on a pilgrimage for the whole year and live among poor people. So I left CYO. And, and how do you respond to that? Um, he he was said, well, you know, you can go. Um, so I, I, that was in December, and in January I left with Sister Maggie, who was then just a, a young novice at the Sisters' Chair of Charity of Saint Augustine, and two other young people, and um, there were five of us. And we literally uh, packed our bags and I found a car and and went all the way out to. Um, Christ Monastery in the desert, because I met another priest friend, Father Jim Flanagan, um, who was like he was a, a man full of fire. God, he he was so emblazed with Jesus Christ. And he said, You must go with that spirit that in a way that Jesus Christ is emblazoned inside of you. And you must go to the poor. And but he says first go to Christ monastery in the desert. For six weeks in solitude, and he said, "But however, if any one of you can't live that solitude, don't stay with it. You know, just go back into the city or whatever." Mm-hmm. But all all six of us, all five of us, spent time in. We all had our own cell for six weeks.
0: Well, what was that like?
1: Ah, uh, it was hard at times. You know, it was a. Uh, it was uh, and it was cold, and it was. But we we were living with five other monks that were just beginning a new foundation at the time, so it was a it was a, a wonderful experience actually with them and with us. And uh, but from that, then we went into the city. We went to Kansas City where Father Jim Flanagan was living, and we lived in a flop house for six weeks. Went out onto the streets, went into bars, and never drank in my life. But I went there with my flannel shirt and Levi's and sat there in the bar and got to know people and went out passing out flyers with them in the morning. I'd get into a truck in the morning at four o'clock with these guys that were just getting out of prison. They were alcoholics, they were homeless people. And they were passing out flyers. And, uh, for like 20, 10 cents an item. Was, it was really hard work and walking in the neighborhoods. And so that was our beginning in Kansas City, living that way in a, in a Flophouse with people that were ah oh, broken marriages uh, mentally ill, mental illness uh, lonely unhappy I mean but we spent every day with them immersed with them pray with them be with them so we did that for six weeks so that's how this whole thing was uh, enveloping so we then 13 months on the road this way went, went from Kansas City then to um, Harlem New York mm. and it was a challenging experience because we experienced the reversal of racism. We go looking for a place to uh, stay and you you call up a a person and uh, a real estate person and they say oh yeah there's a place available and then you get over they saw you were white and they they said well there's nothing available there's nothing open there's nothing. So we experienced that of what it meant to be rejected because you were white not because of black but the black community was in those places we were looking to stay. And finally we found this priest, uh, Father Emerson Moore, God bless him. Pastor of St. Charles in Harlem, uh, who uh, later on became a bishop. Uh, but I loved him and he was so good to us. And But he had such a vibrant African-American parish, you know. But he took us in and he found a place for us to stay. And so that was a good experience in Harlem, to experience that, you know. And then from there to the migrant workers of Illinois. Go out and work in the migrant fields for another six weeks. Experience what they go through. And found learning Spanish through songs. <laughs> go out to the fields singing. And in the singing I'd start picking up, you know, bits pieces of Spanish. Then I'd celebrate mass for them every after every evening. The women would all come, but the men wouldn't come. So one day there was an opportunity to go out in the fields just with the men. They considered me to be a leader of my little family that was there. So I would go out and work with them. And then they came to Mass because I was in the field with them. So, but that, again, experience of plight of people in, the, in that situation.
0: Talk a little bit about a call within a call. Well. Does everybody have that?
1: I don't know. But I I would say that um, it's possible. Um, I was called to be a priest, and I was called to be a parish priest. And I think for most of us as as priests, uh, I I suspect, I mean, we all think someday we'll be a pastor. Um, I had those thoughts, but uh, not real strong though. I don't know that I, unlike my classmates who were really longing to finally get a parish in those days, you didn't get a parish until you're 25 years ordained. It was no such a thing as eight years or 10 years. It, it just didn't happen. But um, so it wasn't a, I guess, a real deep thing inside of me. But um, so I always felt close to people that were poor, or were hurt, little, as people with disabilities. Um, so, so when he said to me, you know, you're really called to live your life with poor people. I I, I felt something that was different uh, than when I, like when you're first ordained. My thoughts were just to be that, a parish priest and in a parish and loved it. Loved to be a part of families and I, I just loved St. Mary's in Avon for that reason. And I loved St. Coleman's as well, but I was always immersed in families and with the children and their you know, it was good. It was wonderful. I was very happy with that. But when he mentioned that to me, this took another twist in my life. You know, um, and then it got further um, deepened within me when, when I went to India and other experiences like this, and uh, uh, really experienced people that are poor. So uh, I don't know that everybody experiences it, but. I think it's possible, but uh, who knows? I mean, in a way, what you're doing, Michael, uh, um, is is somewhat outside the realm of where you are today as a parish priest, and and I think you're very good at what you do, and um, there's something there that most priests don't have. <laughs> so you, you're in, and you're feeling deeply about it, or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. So there's some kind of a call on that, um, because you want to help people deepen in their spiritual life and you want them to um, know and love Jesus Christ and therefore your blog and other things is is done for, precisely for that purpose and it's a way that in everyday life we can't reach people, but you're using that media that we have today to help reach them and to draw them into that love of Jesus Christ, so is that a call within a call? I think it is. Yeah.
0: Okay, so now I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the Trinity—the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—and how you relate or pray to to those persons of God. I think I think people have well, people have all their own uh, ideas. We all relate uniquely to God, but some people have a difficult time relating to the Father or the Holy Spirit or even to Jesus. Tell us a little bit about your relationship or prayer with
1: each of those persons of the Trinity. Yeah. Well, I'm just, uh, for me, it's the whole idea of the Trinity is a family. And and I suspect some people may find it hard to uh, have a relationship with God the Father because of maybe experiences they've had in their own life, maybe didn't always have a loving experience with their own Father. I have found that to be the case. I can remember years ago when I came back from my experience across the country, I went out to the VA hospital in Brecksville, and there was a man there in the doorway, as I was walking in, he kept on saying, are you my father? He was asking every man that walked in, are you my father, are you my father? And he stood there at that door. It must have been a, a half hour. Every man that walked through, are you my father? Are you my father? And I thought, you know, he's a wounded person because he doesn't have a relationship with the father. So I, I find that it's so important that one has a relationship with God the Father. And I was blessed. Uh, yes, I had a, a good father that loved me and um, cared about me. But so I think uh, that whole idea of, of God the Father is the is the person who really is uh, caring for me in so many ways, looking after me in many ways that I wouldn't be even thinking about. But uh, uh, so for me, it's a, it's a very, wonderful moment to to have a relationship with God the Father. Because I feel that when you don't have a relationship with God the Father, you never can pray to God the Father, then there's something missing in your life. I think that that, and I believe that's why we have maybe so much woundedness in our world today, is because one doesn't have a relationship with God the Father. And the whole idea of creation, um, power in the best sense of the word of power, not control, not domineering. But God the Father is that, you know? Um, that's why Jesus was so, um, who he was is because he had this great relationship to the Father. I mean, you, when you read John 17 or many passages in Scripture where Jesus is just imbued with that relationship with the Father, you know, I always like John the 17 because it's just such a wonderful example of you know i want you to be one just as the father and i are one i want you to be one you know so that jesus wants that for us he wants that and so when we pray it's praying in that sense to god the father
0: what's he like
1: i think a source of great strength great strength um, and uh, assurance assurance that whatever you try to do you know you you do it in that sense of um, it's not about you <laughs> But if it's meant to be, uh, it'll happen. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's that whole beautiful prayer that Jesus says, you know, "I want you to be one, as the Father and I are one. Uh, I and him, and him and me." I mean, it's uh, it's that's what's about. So I feel that I feel that a strength from the Father. I feel, uh, you know, when you're uh, the courage. Sometimes we need to take some steps or so the journeys I've in my journey when I'm not always sure of what to do, or what, how to be present, or the fears that come. Well, it's the Father that I find gives me strength and to keep going on. And you know, as they say in Spanish, adelante, another step. Ultrea, <laughs> keep on going, you know, don't stop. And it's the Father that's there that's, that's leading and guiding, you know?
0: What would you say to someone, and I think a lot of Catholics, uh, especially the generation of my father's generation, they think of God the Father, and, and the first thing they'll say is the Old Testament God. You know, the, mm. they have a difficult time relating to this Abba. You know, this this Daddy. Mm. What would you? What, how do you respond to that?
1: Well, um, I, I I would look at it not so much from an Old Testament of Father, as um, a person that right now is closer to you than you think. I think we. I think we feel there's a, a distance between ourselves and the Father. I think, again, it goes back to what is your relationship to anybody who's been Father in your life? And that's why I love the, and I didn't come up with this, but Martin and Caroline here, they call me Abba, and I just love that. Um, it means more to me if they said Father, Father Jim or something. I, I wouldn't like that. But they call me Abba, which we know is Daddy. <laughs> but it's it's so endearing and in fact, in the neighborhood, some of the kids were, other kids pick up. They listened to it, you know, and they they were calling me Abba too. And Martin says, "I'm sorry, that's for us. That's not for you." He's Father Jim, but he's Abba to us. Like they hold on to that. Like not everybody can call me Abba. So, <clears throat> uh, but that's to me is a just a, a, a sense of endearment, and I, that's how I see the father. You know, the one that cares for you. Looks, um, but if you haven't had and i think today that's so tr- i think it's hard for a lot of people to pray to the father because it's not a, it's not a relationship that's real it's a yeah i believe in the trinity father son holy spirit we pray that in everything we say uh, every prayer we say glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit we all of our prayers are very trinitarian <laughs> we are a trinitarian people but you i find a lot of people especially in giving retreats and so forth they have uh, very little relationship to the Father. They're okay with Jesus, mm-hmm. the Word made flesh, the Incarnation, and the Holy Spirit. Again, that's another area. But, anyhow, I think it's it's good to talk about the Father and our experiences with the Father, our experiences as a Father. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean for us as priests? You know, be Father. Appa, I love that. Mm-hmm. So.
0: What about Jesus? How do you relate to Him?
1: well, He's my deepest, wonderful friend. I mean, it's uh, Jesus is that special, very special gift, you know. Of no, um, well, it's Jesus in the Eucharist. It's, I, I, for me, it's Jesus in the incarnation. It's the Word made flesh that dwells among us. Uh, and again, He comes in this very simple, humble, poor way, you know. So he, so Jesus is um, that son of God, but that person that I, I feel like I have a personal relationship with him, um, one that's close to me, one that understands me, knows my heart above all. Yes. It's constantly telling us, you know. Uh, it calls us into his heart. Uh, that, you know, as we think of a year of mercy now and so forth, but Jesus is that very compassionate loving forgiving person um, I would wish you know like as he as a church itself in some ways the institutional church has become so structured and so controlling uh, that Jesus wasn't that way I mean everybody everybody was at a place in Jesus' life and, and I feel I have that you um, know but it's not about making distinctions or holding on to something. I don't know that if we do an awful lot of things in the name of Jesus. I don't think Jesus would be happy about it. I mean, and it's because our need to be in control. I, I, you know, Whereas I believe with my, you know, the relation I have with Jesus, I don't need to be in control of anything. I really don't. Right? Um, but I think he helps me to understand that be open to all people. Uh, yes, things happen. I've been hurt many times. We all have. Uh, I could be very angry and upset by things people have said and done, but to me, but I look at it and say, well, I don't believe that that's how Jesus would look at it. I mean, even with his enemies and all the things that happened to him and everything we get in Scripture, it's it's still a forgiving place. You know, it's um, um you know, it's not sacrifice I want. It's mercy I want. You know. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that he'd be very happy today in some sense about all the things we do in the institutional church, in his name. I don't think Jesus would be happy that we're doing that in his name. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, but to me, it's it's the bond of love and acceptance and receive all people, no matter what they are. I don't know. To me, the relationship with Jesus is very special. It's a, and it's a unique, but it's all about that love. You're, you're loved. Uh, you're accepted. Um, I love for what you're doing. I mean, it, it's 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 a wonderful thing. But again, I feel a lot of people are suffering for that. I don't know that they feel like they are accepted or they they are wanted. Or, you know, um, and I think Pope Francis is doing so much to help us to see that part of Jesus today in the world. And yet he's meeting his opposition. Well, even now, just being in Uganda, I don't know how it does this, but. Incredible.
0: Mother well, Teresa said, you know, that the greatest poverty in the world, even above the physical poverty, is the spiritual poverty. You know, and I think that's what, what you're speaking of.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Ponder a little bit on the Holy Spirit.
1: Well, I love the image of the of the paraclete. Because the paraclete is the one who hears the cry. Yeah, um, so it, it, the Holy Spirit is, you know, is, is, you know, I love it, the sanctifier, the one that calls us to holiness of life, you know? You know, the Creator, Jesus, the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, you know? So He calls us into holiness of life. And um, the Holy Spirit hears the cry. The Holy Spirit hears the cry of the poor, you um, one of the children that lived here, you know, I found a note after they left who had been abused, had been hurt. and uh, But it really haunted me because what the child wrote at the age of six was, I cried and I cried and nobody ever heard my cry. No one ever. This child was sexually abused and physically abused from the time she was three to six. And all that crying when she'd been abused, her mother was on, was Schizophrenic, and she was sleeping most of the time. And so her own child was being hurt, and the child was crying out, and nobody heard the cry. So the Holy Spirit is the one who hears the cry. Yeah. And, um, and it, you know, it's the whole idea that when you don't know what to say, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know how to act, then the Holy Spirit can work. Because if I've got it all together, the Holy Spirit can't work. You know, If my refrigerator is filled with food, I'm not going to be hungry. <laughs> but when it's empty, uh, then we can put something in there. So you have to be empty if, you, if I want to receive the Holy Spirit. I can't be in control. I can't have that I know what has to be done. I know how it has to be done, the way it has to be done. Well, then the Holy Spirit can't work. But He works in emptiness. He works in nothingness. He works in littleness. And that's how I see the Holy Spirit, you know, Um, as it says in that wonderful prayer of AA. But you know, oh God, give me the courage to change the things which I can, accept the things I can't, but the wisdom to know the difference. Well, the wisdom is the Spirit that helps people understand what you can't understand. But AA is a wonderful example of of the need for the Sanctifier, because it's all about that. It's all about weakness. It's all about Nothingness, emptiness, you know. It's that whole passage again in Corinthians about the: in weakness there is strength, you know. It's in the nothingness of life that we have everything. But it's hard, you know, it's hard to grab that. But that's how I see the Holy Spirit anyhow. I know. Great gift to the... And I believe the Holy Spirit is so working in Francis today. Oh my gosh. that's the, Every time we see what happened here in the United States, what's going on in Uganda... Whatever he's trying to do, it's 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 a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not about Francis. He's he, he's the first one to get out of the way. You know, it's not about him. If people think it is, or he's doing one thing or another, no, it's not. You're looking at a very vivid act of the Holy Spirit, and that, in effect, it's the Trinity that's working through him. Because he knows how loved he is by the Father, and what a union he has in Jesus. You know. The whole idea with Jesus, even that uh, uh, we used an expression years ago in the Curcio movement, uh, but Jesus and I are an overwhelming majority.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, without Him, you can do nothing. With Him, you can do everything. Nothing. Overwhelming, yes. it's uh, we can do it, <laughs> but not by yourself. Yeah. So, so the Trinity is a very important. For me, it goes long beyond those days of De Trinitate in the seminary, which I don't know that I, I grasped too much then about the, the, the significance of the Blessed Trinity, especially when it was in Latin. And, but I still remember the title of the course, De Trinitate, the Course on the Trinity. But yeah, it's only in life and as time goes by that you really understand what the Trinity is, you know. Yeah. You don't get it in a textbook.
0: <laughs> so, as we come to the end of the interview, um, What's your prayer life like now after all these years? What does that look like?
1: I feel very good about it. I don't always achieve what I want every day, but I try to make um, my goal every, every day is to have at least two hours of solitude. Um, like an hour in the morning, and I'll have an hour in this afternoon somewhere or this evening. Um, sometimes three if I can, but I don't want to get caught up too much about the two or the three. But at least a, a, a fairly large segment of just plain solitude, you know? And ordinary, my day today, Friday, is my day of solitude. Uh, but I thought, well, Michael can come today. And and I'm trying to start this off now a little bit differently um, this next month and into Advent. It's just a part of my day of solitude also. just to make prayer and make the bread yeah. in solitude. And um, because sometimes in the solitude, in the quiet, it's good to be. Some little thing to do. Um, but I look forward to time of quiet. I don't watch TV. Um, I don't really listen to the radio. Uh, I read the paper. Um, so I'm, a, I'm aware of what's going on, you know. And of course, the people around me, they all, they're all they into all that. But um, I don't need it. Every now and then, I'll turn on 90.3 or something. But I... I, 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 whenever I do it, I say, "No, you don't need that. Shut the darn thing off." You know, if I'm in my, I'm in my car or something. But, um, but the radio to me can be a terrible distraction. I don't know. I don't. Um, and I love sports, so sometimes I want, I can want to hear something. But uh, later i decided just to check out from it all. know, I, I, I hear, you know, from other people, I know what. The, Cavaliers are doing, or the poor Browns, I know the. But anyhow, and my Martin loves baseball, so I do things with him that involves that baseball. And I, I will, during the World Series, I sat with him and watched it, you know, because he wanted me to. And he hugged, you know, cuddled up next side, and he just, because uh, he loves baseball. So we watched it together. And those are things I, I will do, but I mean, I don't want to be caught up in the TV or and I'm, I'm I have to say Michael, I'm just terrible' not that I can't be good at the computer or better at my email and stuff it's not that i, I don't want to, it's not that I don't want to do it but um I don't know I, I guess as time goes long, I'll do a little bit more of it, but I'm not much good of getting on the on the computer or on the internet or as I ask my kids now, I said, well, what's the big thing today? Well, it's Instagram rather than Facebook. And I said, oh, what's the Instagram? Well, it's more private. You control it a little better. And I say, wow, okay. Uh, so they, they know. I ask them questions sometimes before I give in a homily. I'll say, well, what's the big thing today? And then they're waiting for to say, well, how am I going to tie this into my homily? And Martin is very anxious. <laughs> Are you going to talk about me today? And I say, well, indirectly, yeah. I'm going to take some of the information you gave me and I'm going to use it. Uh, so, I mean, it's not that I want, you know, want to preach even the Word of God without knowing what's going on. I do know what's going on and the whole thing in France and everything. But, um, anyhow, that's kind of where I am today. Uh,
0: what would you encourage someone who is new to prayer? What would be your encouragement to them?
1: Well, just try to sit for five minutes and just be quiet. And, and even for five minutes, it might be very restless for you. And just have a little mantra. Maybe just to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Or come, Holy Spirit, come. Uh, or if you are familiar with an antiphon to a psalm, like, My shepherd is the Lord, there is nothing I shall want. Or like the deer that yearns for running streams, and my soul is thirsting for you, O Lord my God. Just to take a little antiphon. I think people that are trying to find their way in are uncomfortable, I think that the most important thing is, like anything just try a little bit and just be quiet for five minutes and maybe say some little prayer like that. Come, Lord Jesus. And you might be, uh, you'll find that if you do it every day for just a few minutes, you'll gradually, you'll like it. It's going to make you feel better. You're discovering something and pretty soon it won't be five minutes. It'll be 15 minutes and it'll be a half hour. But it's, uh, it's not being afraid to enter into the water. You know the old story of the salt doll. You know the story of the salt doll. The the little salt doll would go down every day to the ocean and stand there and would be mesmerized and frightened to death of the power of the ocean. And day after day, the ocean would beckon to the salt doll, Come, come and join me. But the poor salt doll was afraid. So one day, the salt doll got up the courage And she entered the ocean and became one with it. And that's why we have salt in the ocean. So I think we're all like salt dolls. We're afraid something's going to happen. So it can only be good when it'll happen. But I would just encourage people, especially today, I think more people are trying. I always give this to young people in high school. When I have little times for them, I just say, Try, take five minutes away from that, all the electronics and just sit in silence with nothing. See how it goes. I gave that to the Mac- girls last year. For, I had the Lenten Mass, the Ash Wednesday Mass, and I, and I had a whole thing all written out for them. And I said, try these things for each day of the month for the whole of Lent. And I don't know how many of them with, but it's all that little bit of quiet and Thailand. So uh, I, I think that's what it takes. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
0: Can I and all the people that are listening have your blessing?
1: Sure. O loving God, in your good and gracious spirit to us, may you comfort us, may you hold us, may you assure us of your love, and may we be at peace and pray every day. One thing I seek, and this I ask, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And in that spirit, I beseech God's blessings upon you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Thank you, Father
1: John. Thank you, Mike.